This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, November 22nd. I'm Virginia Allen. Former President Trump's Twitter account has been restored. That's just one of the big changes Elon Musk has made since taking the helm of Twitter. Heritage Foundation's research associate in the Center for Tech Policy, Jake Denton, joins the show today to talk about what we are seeing at Twitter under Musk's leadership. Plus, Jake also breaks down what you need to know about the bankruptcy of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Some of the details of how the company was run are pretty shocking. Stay tuned for my conversation with Jake after this. The Heritage Foundation takes the field on offense with their Young Leaders Program. I'm Evelyn Homily from Hillsdale College. I'm Harrison Stewart from the University of Virginia. I'm a journalism intern with The Daily Signal. I'm a digital productions intern in communications. For spring, summer, and fall semesters, the Heritage Foundation hosts undergraduate and postgraduate interns right here in the nation's capital to train our country's future conservative leaders. As a Daily Signal intern, I've had the opportunity to cover exciting events here in D.C. and work in a fast-paced environment with some of the conservative movement's best journalists. In YLP, interns are on the cutting edge of the conservative movement, attending exclusive briefings from heritage experts, members of Congress, and movement leaders fighting for the fate of our country. It's been exciting connecting with big names in the political world and better understanding our nation's greatest threats. If you want to go on offense with other passionate, dedicated conservatives, go to heritage.org intern to learn more about the Young Leaders Program. We are joined today by Heritage Foundation Research Associate in Tech Policy, Jake Denton. Jake, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So, Jake, we had you on a few weeks ago to talk about Elon Musk buying Twitter, big news after so long. And since Musk purchased Twitter, he's made some pretty big changes to the platform so far. Some people love the changes. Other people are not so happy. Some of the folks who work at Twitter are not so happy. Some folks on the political left are pretty angry about these changes. And some of the biggest news, recent news, is that Musk has restored former President Donald Trump's Twitter account. Why is Musk allowing Trump back on Twitter? Well, I think Musk, uh, you know, Getting in and seeing what was happening behind the scenes, he realized pretty quickly that the content moderation rules uh, that had been put in place by the previous regimes uh, were actually completely arbitrary. Uh, you know, there are forms out there where you can see what Trump was banned for, and it's incoherent. It makes no sense. And I think Musk sees that the the rules of the past regime will always hold back Twitter. You know, he wants to move. He's saying the previous, you know, Parag and Jack was Twitter 1.0 heading into Twitter 2.0. That's where kind of these uh, expectations for the new employees come from. And if you carry over the baggage of Twitter 1.0, you're bound to recreate the same mistakes. So I think Trump was the most uh, obvious. You know, it's the elephant in the room. Is he ever going to come back? If you had said he is, you know, a year ago, I don't think anyone would have believed you. But things are changing very quickly. And I think this perfectly positions Twitter to move into Twitter 2.0. Well, and I had to laugh a little bit at the way that Musk did it because he actually put a poll up on Twitter and he let Twitter users vote and say, yes, we want the former president back on the platform or no. Of course, we can't say definitively whether, you know, that alone was how Musk made his decision. You feel like he probably already uh, had determined what he wanted to do. But one way or another, the poll saying, yes, bring Trump back one out, uh, which is pretty fascinating to see. Uh, and yet Trump isn't tweeting. Why? 
Yeah, so quickly, the poll was actually a totally new direction for the platform because hmm. initially the Trump ban was going to wait until the oversight board had been formed. Okay. And Musk had kind of, you know, said no big changes to the platform will occur until this like panel of academics assembles and we can review them, you know, with every perspective at the table. And I think in the midst of the chaos of the employees revolting against him, he just kind of went rogue and did it himself. And uh, I think we've gotten, you know, beyond even Musk, uh, Project Veritas, um, several other accounts that I don't think would have made it through the oversight board. Mm -hmm. So very substantial that he's kind of diverted course from that initial plan, uh, probably the bad advice of an employee who's no longer there. Um, so that was a, a great development. Yeah. Um, Classic Musk. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then in regards to former President Trump, it's fascinating because mm -hmm. his account has been restored, uh, but he's not actually tweeting. Yes. So uh, Truth Social, actually, it's contractually obligated that uh, Trump remains on the platform exclusively, so to speak. Um, so there is a clause within the contract that allows for him, after posting exclusively on Truth, six hours-ish later, he can then post on an adjacent platform. And so I think it's kind of you know, boxing him in a bit. Um, he's saying but th this is Trump's platform. So did he he allowed those rules to be written in for his own platform for himself? Correct. Yeah. This was okay. trying to create like shareholder value. Got right. It. You know, why would because, you know, they go public. Why would I invest in this? Um, and so Trump gave him that reason. You're going to have the Trump bombshells exclusive on truth. Um, and so I believe this contract expires I, almost like a year out from now. Hmm. So he can either, uh, you know, lose that exclusivity deal, uh, you know, cross post on both. Um, quite a few paths. I think the most likely uh, kind of outcome to this is heading into, you know, the thick of election cycle. We'll see Trump post exclusively on truth and then it's mirrored on Twitter and, you know, any other profile. Um, but I don't really see him coming back. Um, yeah. And I think he'll play kind of this, you know, you could have had me and I left type of uh, angle, but it really is a contractual issue. That's fascinating. Well, Musk, when he bought Twitter, he he promised to really model it after a town square, saying anything that you say in a town square, you should be able to say on Twitter because Twitter is now essentially the world's town square. Um, but I, I want to ask you to, to weigh in on something that was written in the New York Times um, by the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, Yoel Roth. So he had a piece in the New York Times on Friday, and he writes, advertisers have played the most direct role thus far in moderating Mr. Musk's free speech ambitions. As long as 90 percent of the company's revenue comes from ads— as was the case when Mr. Musk bought the company, Twitter has little choice but to operate in a way that won't imperil the revenue streams that keep the lights on. So the implication here is that advertisers are not going to put up with language on Twitter, with claims on Twitter that are false or that they deem as hateful conduct or, or whatnot. What are your thoughts here? Can, can you have the free speech aspect on Twitter and also keep advertisers happy. Yeah, it's very interesting to kind of watch this unfold because it's almost like selective outrage from the corporate interest bubble. Mm -hmm. um, for years, essentially since the origins of Twitter, child pornography has been a rampant issue on the platform. And what we're seeing from Elon Musk is that there was almost like a deliberate, uh, you know, just 
don't address it, is allowed to exist uh, type of mentality from Yoel mm. Roth's trust and safety group. Um, and now Elon's saying, you know, it's a top priority. They've already gotten rid of tons of the hashtags uh, that were used to kind of like traffic child pornographic images. But then, you know, if President Trump's on the platform, advertisers won't be on the platform. So these are the same people, mm. you know, that are objecting to content um, on the platform that were totally fine with the uh, the previous Twitter that had all these explicit images and terrible things on it. Um, and so I think it really just comes back to, you know, the corporate interests that um, are aligned with the left that intend to use their power to drive the direction of the country. Twitter's critical infrastructure at this point, and they don't want to have someone like President Trump on the platform. So it really is a political move here. I don't think it has anything to do with their true moral objections to, you know, the rhetoric that could come out. Okay, that's fascinating. Thanks for explaining that. Now, when it comes to to Twitter's future and looking forward, um, of course, you know whether whether you're on Twitter or not. Uh, Pew Research estimates that about one in five adults in America use Twitter, um, but a lot of Americans also have have stock in the platform. How well or poorly Twitter does affects global markets. So far, for for those who use Twitter or have stock in Twitter, they want to know: Is the company going to make it under Musk? Your thoughts? I think, uh, you know, these uh, speculative uh, kind of articles from, you know, CBS to any other given publication saying that Twitter is going to go under and they're unstable are really just trying to prop up this almost uh, bulk kind of Silicon Valley model where you overstaff, you know, you those TikToks where the, the IT girl is, you know, posting a day of my life in tech and they don't do anything. Uh, that is kind of the complex that the media apparatus wants to prop up. And Elon is, you know, bashing it down with a hammer. He's showing that I believe from their 7,500 employees at their all-time high, Twitter is operating almost the exact same structure, same style with almost just around a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, so such a substantial reduction in staff size, uh, yet you know the thing isn't burning down. And I, you're seeing that model and that kind of perspective spill over across the tech sector. You have Amazon, Google, all these other companies beginning to lay off these extra staff. And um, frankly, I don't know how the past kind of leadership structure found things for 7,500 people to do at Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, they have that little round table the other day of uh, the engineers coming together and um, helping sort through the code. And, you know, they're making changes with just around 30 to 40 top level coders um, that we couldn't get with, you know, 7,000 staff. So um, I think we're seeing that the model is completely flawed for these tech companies. Um, you know, they've had so much extra money that you know the way they decided to spend it was on staff when that really wasn't what they needed. Hmm. Well, Jake, I want to take a minute to talk about a tech company that has gone under. A cryptocurrency empire has gone bankrupt just recently. So last week, news broke about the bankruptcy of FTX Exchange. FTX, they were a, a leading centralized cryptocurrency exchange Walk us through this. What exactly did FTX do as a company and how did they go bankrupt? Yes. So in order to kind of really understand this, we have to kind of jump in the time machine and go back to 2017, where the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, founds his first company, Alameda Research, uh, which is a quantitative trading company focusing on cryptocurrency. And so he kind of develops this lore behind him as he uh, amasses a great deal of wealth kind of using legitimate, you know, quantitative methods to trade cryptocurrency at high volumes, getting all this money, spins up FTX, which is essentially um, 
a normal person's crypto exchange, right? For forever, crypto was impossible to invest in because it required a sophisticated knowledge of, you know, basically this Korean apparatus that had, you know, crypto exchanges uh, that weren't necessarily legal in the United States. So Sam brings this kind of layman's, you know, normal person crypto exchange of the states, and overnight it's a success. Mm -hmm. uh, it becomes a monopoly. Regulators are, you know, cozying up to Sam. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of photos with him and Maxine Waters to Gary Gensler, the SEC commissioner. And then overnight, essentially, just similar to its rise, it collapses. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's no sign as to initially why it could have happened. Um, and then we begin to kind of sort through the rubble and see that users' funds that were going on to FTX were being transferred to Alameda Capital, uh, the original company that essentially spun up FTX, to make really risky trades um, that were kind of baseless. They were investing in obscure altcoins, which are essentially you know, different from your Bitcoins and Ethereums. They fulfill very niche purposes. Um, and then the other funds that were still in Alameda were being loaned to Sam Bankman-Fried. And what Sam was doing with his money, I don't think at this point it's any secret, was donating to political causes, uh, predominantly of the far left variety, anywhere from his own family's PACs to, you know, uh, political candidates that were primarying kind of institutional folk. Um, and then they were also just purchasing, you know, houses and luxury cars for executives. Um, so, I mean, you really pull back the curtain here and it appears the entire thing was just a pass-through entity for uh, basically purchases that had nothing to do with cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. um, everything to do with kind of the hedonistic pleasures of the, you know, the leadership apparatus to the political causes that he believed in. Yeah. Now, we know that companies, large companies, do go bankrupt and companies in general, they go bankrupt all the time. But why is FTX specifically taking the news by storm. Why is everyone so blown away that this company specifically went bankrupt? And what does this mean uh, for, for global markets? Yeah, well, I think there's you know a handful of reasons why you could say this took such a strong foothold in the news cycle. I think the first has to be with the uh, kind of speculation over the ties with the Democratic Party uh, and you know all these other institutional forces that allowed for them to kind of manipulate this regulatory environment and develop a, you know a pseudo monopoly over crypto exchanges domestically. But I think the more interesting thread, and you know it's a little less politically valuable, is kind of the complicit behavior with uh, Silicon Valley and the venture capital uh, kind of apparatus. You have groups like Sequoia Capital, which are known to be uh, very good at due diligence. Uh, they don't invest in you know obscure companies like this. Give Sam four hundred million dollars uh, without you know a corporate structure existing. There was no board of directors. The day one affidavit of their Chapter Eleven filing found that they couldn't even produce uh, the bank accounts that the company had. Mm. They there's no bookkeeping at all of where the money was going. Uh, they couldn't even provide a list of names of individuals who worked at the company. There was no HR apparatus. Uh, people were essentially being paid over a Venmo equivalent. Uh, the supervisors approving the process of payments, whether that be reimbursements or just you know your normal salary, were approving the process uh, through the use of emojis. So you get like a thumbs up or a thumbs down on if you were getting your disbursement. So Sequoia Capital and you know a, a whole host of other institutional investors. Here's this pitch from a twenty-something um, who's uh, on loads of amphetamines, right? Uh, you know, he's taking everything from Adderall to Parkinson's medication, uh, overly stimulated, shaking in every you know video you can find of him, 
and they ask him, you know, for details of FTX. And he presents to them, you know, this company that has literally no corporate structure, and yet they still give him all this money. And the question is, what motivated these really legitimate enterprises, these operations with, you know, no shortage of Harvard business grads and veterans of the space to reject every principle they've ever had and invest in Sam? Mm -hmm. And I mean, someone with a more pessimistic mind would probably say it's the political connections. Um, others could, you know, point at the the nature of crypto, this fog around the space of whether or not, you know, it's a legitimate enterprise. Uh, there's really not a great understanding of, you know, the older crowds of what crypto even means. Um, but there really hasn't been an answer for that yet. And uh, groups like Sequoia have slid under the radar. You know, the media isn't talking about them at all. But they were essentially the pitch deck. You know, you go to Tom Brady, you go to any of these individuals who put money in, and Sam's telling them, oh, Sequoia invested. Mm. So they kind of need to answer for what they saw in the process beyond, you know, uh, an eccentric 20-something uh, loaded on amphetamines uh, that motivated them to give them all this money. Yeah, it's wild because you think about all of the hoops that just a small company in, in the United States has to jump through, you know, with all of the red tape and the, the things that they have to have to show the IRS. And it, it's almost mind-blowing to think that um, that FTX didn't have some sort of structure set up. So what happens now? Well, it's very interesting because now, I mean, every regulator in Washington, you know, has essentially met with Sam. There's been no shortage of cocktail receptions to, you know, on the Hill meetings. Uh, you know, he visits with Gary Gensler of the SEC. Um, so all these people are, there's two classes, right? The folks who are deceived and the people who knew. Um, and I think both are probably equally angry. The folks who are deceived believe, you know, a fast one was pulled on them. And the ones who are angry are just mad that this blew up and they're now implicated. Um, and so we're essentially on this collision course with reality where these regulators have to react in some form. Uh, inaction basically shows that they're complicit. So I believe that the hammer is just going to drop. I mean, it's going to supercharge the anti-crypto rhetoric um, that's already existed here in uh, D.C. And, you know, the golden boy is gone. So everything that was holding them back from, uh, you know, already dropping the hammer, um, it's going to be open season. I don't think there's going to be uh, really this, another crypto bull run until you know, this is all sorted out with uh, the regulatory environment. But this is not going away anytime soon. Hmm. We keep a close eye on it. Jake Denton of the Heritage Foundation. Jake, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you've not had the chance already, be sure to check out our evening show right here in your podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to take a moment to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcast, And help us reach more listeners by leaving us a five-star rating and review. We love hearing your feedback. All right. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. We'll be right back here with you at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Samantha Asheris, and Jillian Richards. Sound design by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.